Hello and welcome to a new episode of A Flatpack History of Sweden, where today we're going to be talking all about King Sverka. I'm Chris. And I'm Elsa. Last week we ended midway through the story of King Sverko, who had then just managed to secure the Swedish throne as his main rival, Magnus, Prince of Denmark, was killed in a Danish civil war. This time we will finish Sverko's story as we enter years of fighting over the throne between two major Swedish royal houses. It is almost bordering on a soap opera from uh, now on. But first, it's time to talk about this week's Swedish phrase. Yeah, this week's phrase is Talaman om tålen, så står de i fastun. Okay. So this literally translates to if you speak about the trolls, they will stand in the hallway. Are there any trolls in our hallway now? I can't see any. <laughs> Well, we ha- yeah, maybe this is one phrase that actually has a very similar uh, phrase in English where we say, speak of the devil. I don't actually know what the f- full phrase is. Speak of the devil and he will appear. Is that the phrase in English? Uh, I'm not sure about the end bit, but yeah, that's how people just say it in everyday life. It's like, oh, speak of the devil when you're talking about someone and then they appear. Yeah, so here it's the exact same thing, but instead of the devil, it's trolls. So, talar man om tålen så står de i fastun. Sometimes you just say, talar man om tålen, speak about the trolls. Yeah, so exactly the same as the English. Like you were saying, it means exactly the same thing as the English phrase that you've recently mentioned something or spoken about something and either that person appears or that thing happens. Nice. Well, that's very practical. Um, I'm going to try and use it going forward in my day-to-day Swedish life. Yeah. But um, I think it's now time to get on with the episode proper because there's lots of stuff happening this week. There really is. It's a very action-packed and quite name-packed episode as well. The uh, Lots of things happening and lots of people being involved. Yeah, um, if you haven't seen on our social media, we were recently on Two Guys, Three Crowns podcast talking about our podcast and how uh, we began the podcast and what we talk about when we do the podcast. And I think it was Rodney on the podcast who was saying uh, when he listens to ours, he needs to concentrate extra heavy when there are episodes with lots of names. And we said, yes, we have to do that too when doing the research because there's lots of people with similar sounding names and doing similar sort of things. So unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, because it's quite action-packed, there are going to be a lot of names this week. Yeah, for sure. And also, whilst you mention it, uh, if you haven't listened to our interview on Two Guys, Three Crowns, please check them out. And not just for our interview, they're a great podcast all around with lots of great interviews and just generally sort of a fun outlook on life in Sweden. Yeah, so if you like our Swedish phrase of the week, they sort of have Swedish activities of the week, if you could call it that, talking about what happens when you go to the supermarket in Sweden and everything, because they're both Americans living here, so they have a very similar perspective on Swedish life to us. Trying to decipher why we are all so weird. But yes, we're going to continue the story where we left off in the last episode, in around 1134. 
Last time we did see a bit of the background and the start of Sverka's story, so we should probably do a little bit of a recap if it's been two weeks since the last episode. I feel like I need a bit of a recap. And I write parts of the episode, because, but please do share a recap, because there's a lot going on. So, in 1125, Inga the Younger, king of Sweden, died, but left no male relatives to take the throne after him. However, his uncle, a previous king, Inga the Elder, did have a daughter called Margaret Fredkulla, the Peace Woman, who was by now married to Danish king Niels, and that couple had a son called Magnus. And this Magnus was the only male relative of either of the Ingers living in Europe. And so he could pretty much claim the Swedish throne to himself, despite not being the son of a son of a Swedish king. However, uh, Magnus tries to do this a bit prematurely, as in Svealand, where the kings of Sweden are traditionally proclaimed, the locals have already named a man called Ragnvald Knapphövde, king of Sweden. So that's a bit awkward. There are now two people, uh, Ragnvald and Magnus, claiming the throne of Sweden, but with bases in different areas of the country. And things get even more awkward for Ragnvald as he goes on his ceremonial procession around Sweden, a practice known as Eriksgata, but declines to take the ceremonial hostages in Magnus's stronghold of Westergötland. And the local people, well, they murder him. Too right. So, <laughs> life lost for Ragnvald. Uh, far from this securing the Swedish throne, though, for Magnus, it only makes things more complicated. Magnus doesn't really have an opportunity to secure his claim over the rest of Sweden, and there is no evidence he is formally proclaimed king in Svealand or has time to do his own Eriksgata, his own ceremonial tour. This is because he is busy getting married marrying Rikissa, a Polish princess, and he's also busy taking part in some wars in Germany and fighting off Danish rebels. Yeah, he's a bit of a busy man, and uh, Sweden isn't really top of his to-do list, so unfortunately for Sweden. And in 1130, his mother dies, and his father, King Niels, married Ulfhild, Inga the Younger's widow, and she supposedly convinced Magnus to start brutal retaliations against these Danish rebels, eventually igniting a full-blown civil war in Denmark, so he's even got less time to worry about Sweden. In 1132, when this war is kicking into top speed, Sverker enters our story, and he is elected king of Sweden up in Sverland. Presumably uh, the Swedes are getting bored having their so-called king not even caring about the country and proclaim a real king for them. Yeah, possibly, because yeah, Sweden isn't getting a lot of Magnus's attention, if any. So the Swedish locals sense an opportunity to get rid of this semi-official and largely absent king they have in Magnus, and instead, like Chris was saying, they elect Sverker. If we remember from last time, Saxo Grammaticus, the Danish historian, described the situation like this. 
The Swedes, when they heard that Magnus was busy with war in Denmark, took one of their fellow countrymen, a man of modest ancestry by the name of Sverker, as their king, not because they appreciated him in particular, but since they would not stand under the rule of a foreigner. And it is with that slight insult that Sverker enters the scene. I must say, it is such a backhanded compliment. It's like, Sverko, be our king. You're not You're not great, but you're better than that da- Danish fellow we don't like. First choice, but not really first choice in a way. There isn't an all-out war between Sverko and Magnus, because Magnus and his father, King Niels, are up to their necks in dangerous rebels, and so Sverko's just sort of staying at the side, not really getting involved, because let's let his enemies kill each other. Yeah, Magnus and Niels are essentially too busy in Denmark to really be getting involved with what's happening up in Sweden. Yes, but someone who does want to get involved in what's happening in Sweden is Neil's wife, Ulfhild, because she sees that things are really going downhill for her family in Denmark, so she actually escapes Denmark after some encouragement from Sverka and moves to Sweden to marry the Swedish king. (laughs) I think this is such a bold move on her part. I love it. Yeah, and as we mentioned last time, this does make sense in a number of ways for both parties. For one, whilst, of course, we're looking back at history and we already know the outcome, it does seem like the Danish Civil War was going badly for Magnus and Niels at this point. Obviously, nobody could predict how it would end at the time, but Sverker looks like a more stable prospect for Ulfhild, at least for the time being. Plus, seeing as Ulfhild was the widow of a previous Swedish king, Inga the Younger, who was probably the last legitimate Swedish king, Ulfhild was representing some of this old power and influence of the now extinct Stenshield dynasty, and probably still had some supporters somewhere across Sweden. This marriage would have helped bring some legitimacy to the non-royal Sverka, who has almost appeared out of nowhere, and probably brings more power to Ulfhild herself, as she's able to help bring people together and gain a bit of political influence in the court. Exactly. And in hindsight, she made the right decision because in 1134, Magnus is killed in a battle against Danish rebel leader Eric, uh, who then also defeats King Nils a few months later and is crowned King of Denmark uh, with a wonderful name. He's crowned King of Denmark and becomes known as Eric the Memorable. Which we are doing right now. We're remembering him. <laughs> yeah, it's correct in a sense. That's quite a nice epithet to have. Better than slimy. But have no fear, the soap opera that is Scandinavian politics at the time only continues its very dramatic storyline. And from now on, Sverker and his descendants will engage in a hundred-year-long tug-of-war battle with another family over the throne. So strap yourselves in for more drama. Yeah, so Sverker's going to get on with his rule, and yeah, by the time he's finished, everything's all going to kick off with this other royal family in Sweden. But before we get there, we need to see how Sverker does as king. We're going to be covering a lot of detail today. Uh, It does really seem to feel like we're starting to get a lot more information about what's happening too. There's going to be lots of political dealings, some murders and 
ambushes and love and quarrels, plus some influential non-royal figures appearing for the first time over the next few episodes. So there's all this to look forward to. Of course, all of these details existed before this period, but we're only now really getting a lot of information on it so we can start building a bigger picture of what's happening. It's starting to feel a bit like the West Wing meets Game of Thrones with a bit of How I Met Your Mother or Friends on the side. That, that is a pretty good way. If you want a popular culture reference to what Sweden is like in the high Middle Ages, yeah, just think of... West Wing meets Game of Thrones meets How I Met Your Mother. And one final thing to look forward to in the next uh, few episodes or so is the fact that we're going to see almost the beginning of the age of the Swedish politician in some mm -hmm. ways. As we see very powerful non-royal advisors and figures and leaders starting to make their mark on the kingdom too. Exactly. But for now, let's continue Sverkos' life story. It is 11.34 and he can now probably start to feel a little bit more secure on the throne. His Danish enemies have killed each other, uh, including Magnus, who had claimed to be king of Sweden. So they're all taken care of. Sverker is married to his lovely wife Ulfhild, who is a very powerful figure and, as we see, holds quite a lot of influence in her own right. Also, funnily, Ulfhild can now enjoy being queen for the third time in her life and for the second time in Sweden. That's not everyone who gets to have that life. No, she's a very cool person and has this very unique status. However, Sverko isn't entirely settled and he has a few things on his to-do list early on, his first... You know, his first hundred days with American presidents, they always talk about what they do in the first hundred days. And we don't know if it was a hundred days, but this is what Sverko wants to get going with. The most immediate thing is to build better relations with the church in Svealand. The bishop, Bishop Henrik, or he's sometimes called Henry in a more anglified version, he's bishop of Sigtuna. But he had been expelled from his position up in Svealand and had then actually travelled south to Skåne and fought alongside Magnus in the civil war there and being killed in a decisive battle. And this is quite a dramatic position for a bishop to take. And actually, there were lots of bishops and archbishops involved in this Danish civil war. So it's quite of a religious conflict in, in many ways, too. But uh, we don't have time to cover all of that. The fact that Henrik was removed could be because the church, or Henrik himself, didn't agree with Sverka being put on the throne, and that maybe he agreed more with Magnus's historic claim to the throne. We don't know why, but it could also have been an internal church political argument. But either way, whoever replaced Henrik presumably would have had an early visit from Sverka, who would have been keen to get the church on his side. He actually seems to have completed this task quite successfully, judging by the events later on in his reign to do with the church. But having one of your main bishops head off to fight with a pretender to your title isn't really a huge endorsement right at the start of your <laughs> rule. 
There are also other bits of information that some historians think imply that Sverker wasn't instantly recognised all across Sweden after Magnus's death. Some Norwegian sources mention important and independent actions taken by local figures in Vestergötland throughout the 1130s. This includes a Jarl, one of those sort of second-in-command chaps. Governor uh, types. Yeah, governor or the top knight or something, uh, a mix of all these roles from Vestergötland and as I said, called Karl of Edsvera, and he seems to have gotten involved in diplomatic relations with the Norwegian king about the Norwegian Vestergjotland border. And you would imagine that this sort of thing would have normally been done king to king because it's so important. But whatever the situation, this Jarl doesn't seem to directly challenge Sverker for the kingdom, and he disappears from history a few years later. And despite this rocky start, it seems like Sverko was acknowledged in the Mälaren region in Svealand by the end of the 1130s, as there aren't any rebellions or further challengers trying to take the throne. In fact, the rest of the 1130s is pretty quiet in terms of information on any major events happening. It isn't until the 1140s that Sverko really starts to get involved with some big religious and political projects. But before we get on to that, during the 1130s, he was busy building a family and grooming some successors. Firstborn to Sverko is a son called John, or Yuan, again, whether you want it anglified or not, Judging by later events in his life, he is probably born sort of as soon as possible, if we can call it that, after Sverko's marriage to Ulfhild. So let's say he's born sometime around 1134. John, as we're going to call him, is seen as the natural successor, as the oldest son, and gets involved in a lot of things in this episode. So remember him, John, Sverko's oldest son. Following on from John is a son called Carl, uh, who will also appear later in the story. Then there are two daughters, the first being Ingegerd, classic name by now. <laughs> We've had a lot of Ingegerds. Ingegerd doesn't appear to be that involved in political matters, and effectively the only thing we know about her is that she becomes prioress of that by now famous Vereta Abbey and their convent there, and dies in 1240, so a good 60, 70 years later. Nice. The second daughter is Helena, or at least she's probably called Helena. Historians aren't really sure, but this is the sort of agreed name for her, and she also appears later in the story too. But that's where we're at for Sverker's growing family and sort of the only thing he gets up to in the 1130s in terms of sources and information. So let's step forward a bit to the next big thing that happens in his life. Yeah, so we're now in 1142 and because the domestic situation seems under control for Sverker, it's foreign policy that's now on the agenda. The first thing that happens is a bit of a dispute with Novgorod. Uh, now, it's been a while since we looked at Novgorod, although there have, of course, been the odds of royal marriage between Rus princess and Swedish princesses. 
over the past hundred years, but we haven't talked much about Novgorod really since the Vikings. So uh, let's have a brief catch up on where Novgorod is at. If you remember all the way back in 1019, Yaroslav I, Grand Prince of Novgorod and Kiev, got married to Ingejad, the daughter of Ulofhötkonung. Around this time, we see Staraya Ladoga, the town we first mentioned centuries ago, become a sort of yaldum loosely in the sphere of the Kievan Rus. It was supposedly ruled by Ragnvald Ulfsson, who some people claim might have been the father of King Steenschil from previous episodes, but this is so dubious we didn't even mention it back then. No, there's uh, not many people seem to agree with this. So, uh, yeah, we didn't mention it. Then, of course, we see more dynastic marriages between the Rus, by now mainly looking at Kiev, because Kiev has sort of taken over all of that area. And that was between the Rus and the Scandinavian royal families. Back in the 1090s, so 50-odd years before where we are now, Inga the Elder's daughter, Christina, married Mstislav of Novgorod, and that couple had many children. One of those married the Danish prince that Magnus murdered last time, and they had a son called Valdemar, who will appear later in this episode in his job as Prince of Denmark, or Duke of Denmark. We said this was a soap opera, so don't say we didn't warn you about the crazy family connections. Yes, and uh, unfortunately the good relationship that Sweden had with the Rus starts to get a bit complicated from 1132, the start of today's episode. This is, of course, the same year that Sverker was declared king of the Swedes up in Svetland. By this time, Mstislav has gone from being Prince of Novgorod to Grand Prince of Kiev and leader of the whole Rus. But he dies in 1132 and there's a bit of a succession dispute and a few years later Novgorod effectively declares independence from Kiev and goes on to found its own Novgorod Republic, a wealthy city-state, sort of its own country based on just the one city, focusing on trade in the whole Baltic and Rus region. Mstislav will in fact go down in history as the last ruler of a united Rus nation, but of course that's looking back now, and at the time there were definitely other Kiev people trying to reunite the Rus into one people. This change in rulership and political system, hundreds of miles away from Sweden, is actually going to have quite a big effect on how Sweden relates to everyone else in the region. The Republic of Novgorod will become a key foreign policy foe or enemy for Sweden for the next few hundred years or so, and is really quite fascinating in its own right. It really is, and we should mention just very briefly how it works now, since it becomes Sweden's main enemy outside of Scandinavia. So you should look at how it was structured briefly now, and then we don't have to go over it again when Novgorod keeps popping up in the future. On the face of it, Novgorod had quite a democratic structure, even by today's standard, but especially for back in the 12th century. At the top of the power tree was the prince of Novgorod, who up until now had been one rank below the grand prince of Kiev in the Rus system. But since 
they're no longer a part of that. The prince of Novgorod is now head of government. His power, however, seemed to have been shared quite a lot with the Archbishop of Novgorod, whom some historians believe was actually the true head of, let's call it the executive branch of the government. Below them, the prince and the archbishop, there was the city mayor or the posadnik. One crucial fact is that the ordinary people of Novgorod had the power to elect and to fire both the prince and the archbishop. Which is super interesting. I'd not heard of any system like that ever in the High Middle Ages, so well done Novgorod for establishing such a democratic system. In the case of the princes, they were usually invited in to run the city from nearby or neighbouring states, so outside recruitment. Many of the princes were invited in or uh, dismissed by the Novgorodians, and fascinatingly, at least some of them signed a contract which described the prince's rights and responsibilities. Nobody is entirely sure how the city functioned politically, but these decision makers were supported by various committees and the people voted and gathered in what was called vetches or sort of public assemblies. But yes, as much as uh, I would like to go on and start a history of the Novgorod Republic podcast, uh, we should stay on track and we should reiterate that this is important for the story now while we're telling you this information. As we said, Sweden had had a good relationship with the Rus for centuries, but now Novgorod has its independence, it starts to go downhill a bit. This would probably have been quite a big political change in the region. You can imagine Sverka sitting at home or in the palace getting news of this and figuring out that this was actually going to be a big change for Sweden too, but also an opportunity. In this period, Novgorod was intent on becoming a great trading power of its own, taking advantage of the gradual decline of Kiev that was going on throughout this period as they found their new independence. This probably brought them into conflict with Sweden, who was also rather keen to keep control of a lot of this eastward-focused trade that Novgorod was now trying to take control of themselves. With two smaller powers to contend with, rather than the larger Kievan Rus, Sweden's traders probably saw this as an opportunity too. It seems like the Swedish state, if we can call it that at this point, which we can't really, also wanted to help these traders through direct intervention in the matter, and that's what Sverka gets up to next. According to the First Novgorod Chronicle, the two countries come to blows in 1142 when Swedish troops attack some Novgorod merchants in the Baltic Sea, killing 150 of them. And this is the first time there's been a conflict between the two peoples, and it will set the tone for the next few centuries. The Chronicle says that a Kinyaz, or ruling prince, of the Swedes, with a bishop in sixty boats, attacked merchants who were coming from oversea in three boats, and they fought. They accomplished nothing, and they separated three of the boats and killed one hundred and fifty of them. Unfortunately, this is all the Chronicle says, so we don't have any more information. 
The fact that a bishop is mentioned is quite interesting, and that the leader is named as the ruling prince of Sweden, but we have no Swedish records of this incident, so we'll just have to take the chronicle's word for it ever happening. For now, that's all we have to say on Novgorod, but it's definitely worth keeping Novgorod in mind for future reference. Yes, because they're annoyed that their traders have been killed by the Swedes, so they'll, they'll remember that as, as we should too. The next year, something else with religious connection begins. Queen Ulvhild, Sverko's wife, takes a bit of a religious initiative and invites the Cistercian order of monks to Sweden, where they found the abbeys of Alvastra and Nydala in the year 1143. It appears that the Alvastra abbey was built on ground that was part of the wedding gift Sverko gave to Ulvhild. So this is being built on her personal royal land, just showing how much this means to the royal couple. Indeed, because Sverk is really trying to solidify his relationship with the church with this move, which, as we saw in a couple of previous episodes, does seem to be key to being able to reign in a stable country, keeping the priests and bishops on the side. Speaking of a country that definitely isn't quite as stable, things are heating up in Denmark, and soon that drama is going to spread over the border to Sverker's Sweden. A few years after the founding of these abbeys, at some point in 1146, Eric III of Denmark actually abdicates the throne. And fun fact, he was actually the first and so far only Danish monarch to abdicate by choice. A few are obviously kicked out and removed by force, but he's the only one who says, nah, I don't really feel like it, I'm going to give up. He actually dies in a Danish abbey in August of the same year, so it seems like he might have had some health problems and realised he wasn't able to physically run the country anymore or some, something along those lines. Of course, he might have been pushed out politically as well, but it's portrayed as his own decision. Either way, his abdication leaves a power vacuum in the kingdom, and of course, a civil war erupts, just as the Danes love, uh, in a three-way battle for the crown. The Danes really do love their wars at this time. Uh, this time round, the nobles of Jutland. Jutland is the pointy peninsula that sticks out from, from Germany, that is the mainland Denmark. The nobles there, they declared a man called Knut, king of Denmark. Uh, this is actually the son of Magnus, uh, Magnus, the wannabe king of Sweden that we talked about. So in some way, this Knut probably saw himself as at least partly in line to the Swedish throne as well, but he is proclaimed king of Denmark as he is the grandson of King Niels, who was killed 12 years earlier. Whilst all of this is going on, the powerful figures in the rest of Denmark, including in Skåne, crowned the illegitimate son of Erik the Memorable as King Sven III. For the next few months, these two engage in some battles, but all this really does is confirm that they are running half the country each, essentially. Bizarrely, in 1147, the two men pause their conflict 
and go on a crusade together in northern Germany. That's a nice bonding exercise. Well, we're now not going to fight each other to the death anymore. We're instead going to go and convert some pagans. They attacked the Vendish people in the Vendish Crusade at a place of halfway between Lübeck and Rostock. So that's on the North Sea coast of Germany. During a naval battle, Sven needed some support from Knut, but Knut didn't send any help and Sven's flagship was sunk. This means that when they return to Denmark later in the year, the civil war is back on. Yeah, the, the peace is over and because we didn't help each other properly during the crusade, we're going to fight each other again. And it's around this time that Queen Uvhild of Sweden dies. Uh, not being content with being alone for the rest of his life, Sverker decides to remarry. And we actually mentioned last time who this was going to be. It's Rikissa. I'm sorry, the, it's getting very name-heavy now, I know. But Rikissa is the previous wife of Magnus, the pretender to the Swedish throne, killed in the Danish Civil War. But in terms of the story now in 1147 uh, she is most importantly mother to this king knut in denmark after her husband magnus was killed in 1134 rikissa returned to poland leaving the two sons she had with magnus back in denmark where one of them sven becomes king a few years later Rikisa moved to Poland, where she married an exiled prince of Minsk from the Rus in a political marriage. But this alliance fell apart after about a decade of marriage, but not before she had three more children, including a daughter called Sophia. So Rikisa was divorced in 1145 from this exiled prince of Minsk in Poland, and in 1146, her first son, Knut, became king of Denmark, and so she returned to Denmark with her daughter, Sophia. Just a few years later, seeing that Sverko was now single and ready to mingle in Sweden, she packed her things, moved to Sweden with Sophia, and married Sverko in 1149. This is a lady who does not rest... Well, none of the ladies in this story, they're, they're queen multiple times in various places, which is fascinating. And dramas in more way than one, I think. Um, you can imagine that Sven won't like the fact that Sweden is effectively taking sides in the Danish civil war as their king has married the mother of the other Danish king. Some historians actually feel that this marriage might have been a move by Sverker to take one final step towards securing his power in Sweden, suggesting that Rikissa might still have commanded some loyalty from her previous husband Magnus supporters in Jutland. But that doesn't really sound that plausible, really, because it might have been a very small side effect, but it doesn't seem like Sverker's having any problems ruling his kingdom or that anybody is trying to remember Magnus, who was king over nearly 15 years before. So 
yeah, I mean, Sverka hasn't faced any rebellions or coups that we know of, so it's more likely that he's using Rakissa as a way to get closer to one of the kings of Denmark rather than using her history in Sweden to become a stronger king in Sweden. Definitely. And just before we move on, I feel like I need to point out the fact that Sverko, through marrying Rikissa, is also marrying the ex-wife of his enemy, his rival to the Swedish throne back in the 1130s, which is, of course, only a decade away. So it's very intense. And speaking of intense developments, the Danish Civil War takes a dramatic turn a year after the marriage between Rikissa and Sverka. Sven has teamed up with his cousin, this Duke Valdemar, who we mentioned previously, and in 1150 they managed to defeat Knut in his home turf of Jutland, and according to Saxo Grammaticus, Knut then flees Denmark, seeking refuge in Sweden. Of course, because that won't make things complicated. Yeah, exactly. But I bet he was quite happy that his mother was married to the Swedish king at this point, because I think that's the entire reason why he goes to Sweden. It seems like Sverker didn't mind that his stepson had arrived to crash on his kingly sofa at first. Of course, this was never going to be a perfect solution, and soon Knut had to start selling some land that he owned in Sweden into it to help fund his stay there, because it's not... It's not cheap keeping another king as your guest, and he certainly wasn't getting a free ride from his mother and stepdad on this side of things. To make things worse, Saxo Grammaticus tells us that Sverker's son John spent a lot of this time writing highly critical speeches and jokes and tirades against Canute where he teased him for being a loser in the Danish Civil War and that he abandoned his kingdom like a coward and was basically just a, a bit of a loser. And this did seem to kick Knut into gear somewhat because he took offence, probably quite rightly, but then he bought some ships with whatever money he had left and got some provisions and sailed over to Poland to meet some of the people over there before later going on to Germany and then re-entering Denmark to continue the civil war. Yeah, we should just say that John, who was taunting Sven, they're sort of stepbrothers and as their parents have remarried each other. Yeah. Uh, I think we should read this bit from Saxo Grammaticus. Knut was first well received by his stepfather in Sweden, but it did not take long before he began to be a nuisance to him, so that he had to sell what land he had over there in order to procure food. There is no people who are more willing to accept refugees than the Swedes, but also no one who is quicker to get bored of them again. Sverko's son John who was an exceedingly brave but not very courteous man, also made some insults about the beatings that Knut had inflicted and about his flight and teased him, ashamed as he was, by singing this seal in which he overwhelmed his guest with scorn and contempt, mocked him for his ill-fated happiness and reproached him with approachable and insulting words for his cowardice and the misfortune he had had in the war. Knut got so close to committing a crime against John that he bought a ship and food and fled to Poland 
in the confidence that his maternal uncles there would help him. So yeah, that, that sums up pretty much what happened after Knut had arrived to crash in Sweden with his mum and her new family and he was being mocked by his stepbrother and left and got some help from Poland. Yeah, in, in the gloriously over-the-top and slightly confusing language of the time, uh, which doesn't necessarily translate the best from the modern-day Danish from the original Danish, but the, you get the gist of it. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you think that basically laughing your stepbrother out of the country was pretty rude, John then commits probably the worst crime we've seen so far. When looking at these historical events, of course, it's strange in the sense that the only real crimes that we've seen have been murders and assassinations and and war-related things. Historical murders don't necessarily shock as much as they should, especially ones over a thousand years ago. So it's, it's sometimes hard to get in your head that these were real people being murdered and killed in horrible ways, whereas this crime is slightly different, and I think it really brings this to life, that these were real people. Saxo Grammaticus tells us about John's next shocking actions. During the same days, the governor of Halland had left Denmark, John was ignited by sensual love to the governor's wife and to his sister, who was a widow. Obsessed with their beauty, he stole them and abducted them to Sweden to satisfy his lust. He must have acted so shamefully towards them that he forced them to have intercourse with him alternately every other night, and thus offended these chaste women by practising the most heinous deeds against them without regard to the fact that one of them was married and the other an honourable widow. So little did he care by giving his lust free play." Eventually, when both his father and the Swedish people cursed him, he sent them home again. King Sven decided to avenge this act of disgrace on the entire Swedish people, as it was a disgrace to all Danes, as he thought that a public crime must be washed away. That is just despicable. Yeah, he's basically abducted two women and then rapes them on alternate nights for a long period of time that's not entirely sure. Um, yeah, it's, it, you kind of don't really want to think about it too much because it's just really sick. Um, but yeah, so this is the, the character of this John who he mocks people, uh, which is kind of bad enough. And then he commits, yeah, the worst crime in Swedish history so far, effectively. Definitely that, that we know of. Unfortunately for Sven, the, the Danish king, he wasn't able to avenge John's dreadful deed as he got well distracted by other matters but it certainly wasn't forgotten and it certainly wasn't forgotten by the Swedish people either because sometime later in about 1152 Prince John was due to appear as at a session of the Ting. Uh, when he was there well he was killed by some peasants uh, we don't have any more details on this. Saxo Grammaticus just says that he was killed at a thing by the people, but he had previously said that the Swedish people were outraged at John's behavior with these Danish women, so we think his death was related to that. Yeah, it's definitely tempting to say that it did have something to do with this. 
Uh, but it could potentially have been something that John was mocking the peasants, just like he was doing with Knut. Uh, he just seems to be a, a horrible person in general. Um, as a result of John's killing, a conflict arose between Sverker and his people, because naturally you can't just kill the heir to the king without there being some consequences. And Sven naturally sees this and wants to invade Sweden to get revenge for the rape of this governor's wife and sister. Uh, Sverker was getting to be quite an old man at this point with little taste for war, according to Saxo Grammaticus. Just another incentive for Sven to try and invade. In fact, so grave was the situation that a delegate from the Pope, who was actually in Scandinavia at the time, tried to persuade Sven to forgive the outrage, implying that John had just been punished by the Swedish people, and that was enough punishment. He didn't want to see more wars between Christian countries. We'll return to this papal legate later in the episode, because for now we should uh, finish this story about the war. In late 1153, Sven, against all this advice and uh, warnings, decided to proceed with a military attack into the Swedish province of Småland. Apparently, Sverker didn't want to meet this attack in open battle, as he was afraid of a quick defeat. So instead, he encouraged the local people to fight back in small-scale battles, and they seemed to have taken this advice, ambushing the Danes in the forests whenever they got a chance. A bit unusually for the time, uh, this war was fought in the cold of winter. Saxogamaticus says that a great deal of the Danish horses died of exhaustion and a lack of food. As a result, the invasion was a failure despite a few local successes. Sven was forced to return to Denmark in early 1154 and the Swedish-Danish war was over, at least for this time. However, the Danish Civil War, now in its eighth year, that was still going strong. Now, up until now, Sven had been allied with his cousin Valdemar, but for some reason, Valdemar switches sides at this time and teams up with the rival, Knut. This, by extension, means he is closer to Sweden. So close, in fact, that it was time for another marriage alliance. Valdemar and Sverkov first begin this alliance by betrothing Sofia, Rikissa's Polish daughter, to Valdemar. She was still too young to be properly married, but they could marry once she'd reached the right age. And then a few years later, in 1156, Knut and Valdemar went to Sweden to visit Sverker, and it was there that Knut married Sverker's daughter Helena, helping to formalize this new three-way alliance. Amusingly, this also meant that Rikissa became the stepmother-in-law of her own son. Yeah, it's just so... We need to draw one of these diagrams of all these. There's going to be arrows in every direction. It's very uh, becoming semi-incestuous. This is now turning into more confusing than most actual soap operas have ever been. Sanxo Grammaticus tells us a bit about these marriages, and he says that Sverker received Knut and Valdemar so friendly that he, hoping for a future son-in-law, 
offered to make them his heirs whilst passing over his own children, either because of the incompetence of his sons or because of the high birth of the distinguished wooer, which seems very dramatic and generous of him, although if his son Carl is anything like his dead son John, perhaps we shouldn't blame him for preferring to have someone else follow him in Sweden. It might actually be quite a good idea. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's also a bit of a turnaround because considering John used to insult Knut and trashed his reputation so badly last time that he was driven out of Sweden, now his sister has married him after he's been killed. Uh, But at least he wasn't around to see it, I guess. He probably Mm. wouldn't have liked it. So in addition to this about face, we now have the stepdaughter of Sverka being married to Valdemar and Sverka's full daughter being married to Knut, all whilst Rikissa is the mother of Knut with the knowledge that Sverka's ex-wife Uvhild was the stepmother of Knut's father. This is so confusing. <laughs> but but is that all now? That, I, that's it for now. Let's just be glad that the Norwegians didn't also get involved. Yeah, uh, we didn't need the fourth side of things to come into this. But yeah, now that this new alliance was secured, the two Danish leaders attacked Svien and eventually forced him to retreat. Knut made a deal with Valdemar that would see them both as co-rulers of Denmark. Sven wasn't totally out of the picture, but it's good enough for now. Sverko was probably quite happy with the situation, finally having his wife's son on the throne of Denmark. On Christmas Day, Sverko was heading in his coach to the new abbey at Alvastra for some early morning religious service. Maybe even starting to plan out the year 1157 and how he would utilize this new situation that had come about. But the coach was suddenly stopped. The king was then approached by his coachman, who was known as a trusted servant. So Sverko probably wasn't that worried. Perhaps there was just some traffic. I don't know, a goat crossing the road in front of them. But Sverko should have been worried because the coachman stabbed him to death. Oh, okay. Um, Hello. Stab, stab, stab. Yes. Very dramatic. The suggestion that the assassin was a trusted servant is mentioned by a papal letter at the time. This is pretty heinous, even for the 12th century, just to be stabbed by one of your trusted servants. Saxo Grammaticus mentions that Sverko was murdered when he lay asleep. Uh, But seeing as he was old at this time, he could have been sleeping in the coach, maybe. I don't know. Saxo also mentions that another Danish prince, another Magnus, made the servant commit this crime because he desired to be king himself. So more on that story later. But yes, that's it. Uh, Sverke is dead. He's uh, lasted quite a while, nearly 30 years, which is quite impressive considering the past few episodes where we've had 10 brains in 50 years, but also considering that he wasn't really even chosen because he was going to be a good king just because he wasn't foreign. Rikissa is known to have survived Sverke's death, although the facts 
of her later life and the date of her death are unknown. Some odd legends suggest that she married the coachman who took part in the assassination of Sverka, but that seems pretty unlikely. Yeah, we don't think so, but uh, maybe after such an eventful life, she just uh, likes to quietly live out the rest of her days. Before we end today, uh, even though Sverko is now dead, we have two epilogues for you. Well, one is a jump back in time a few years to talk about that papal legate that we mentioned briefly. And another one is the epilogue to conclude the Danish Civil War as, as that all steps up a gear and it's in, it's in itself pretty impressive considering how crazy it has been so far. So let's finish the episode with just those two things. First of all, the papal legate we mentioned who was involved in the Swedish-Danish War back in 1152. This was a man called Nicholas Breakspear. What an amazing last name, Breakspear. Now, some of you are probably thinking that that sounds a bit English, Breakspear. And you're right, Mr. Breakspear was born around 1100 in Hertfordshire in England. He spent the later part of his youth in France, training to be a clerk and learning canonical law. He joined the priory at Avignon as a priest and got a reputation for being quite a strict priest when given power over other members of the church. Mr. Breakspear travelled to Rome a couple of times in the 1140s, where he appears to have caught the attention of the Pope, Eugenius III. It seems the abbey that he was working at at the time complained to the Pope, saying he was too strict, but the Pope took the advantage of this skill and declared him a papal legate, sending him round to places to make sure his bishops and priests towed the company line. He also appointed Breakspear Bishop of Albano sometime in 1149. But it really gets interesting in 1152, Pope Eugenius sends Breakspear on a diplomatic mission to Scandinavia, just like Ansgar mm-hmm. 300 years earlier. He starts off in Norway, in fact, and massively summarising the story, he gets a lot done. On his arrival in Norway, the country was not really as stable as Sweden. The king was weak and there was an ongoing civil war. Breakspear, however, helps bring the warring factions to the negotiating table and restores the monarchy. At this point, it was the Archbishop of Lund in Denmark who had authority over Norway and Sweden, counting those countries as part of his own Christian domain. Breakspear decided that Norway should have its own Archbishop in Trondheim, and not only that, but this new Archbishop would have authority over Iceland, Greenland, and the Faroe, Orkney, and Shetland Islands. So, to help this new area grow, he founds three cathedral schools in Norway too. Understandably, the Archbishop of Lund, who was actually visiting France at the time all this was happening, Well, he was quite annoyed to come back and find that he had lost control of at least half of his territory. I mean, that was a big chunk of land that was now being looked after by the newly created Archbishop of Trondheim. 
So this archbishop in Lund was probably a bit nervous when Nicholas then headed to Sweden in early 1153 because was he about to lose even more of his power? Well, first, Nicholas is worried about the Swedish-Danish war that is about to break out. Like we said, he tries to persuade Sven not to invade Sweden because, quote, the land was difficult for waging warfare and the people were poor. So there was no advantage to seek there. That's not very very nice to the poor Swedes. No, uh, but of course we know this didn't work as Prince John had just been killed by the Swedish peasants at the Ting. So Sven thought it was the right time to attack. And we also know how the story ends. So let's see what else Nicholas Breakspear gets up to in Sweden. We know he was received by Sverker with great honours. During a meeting in Linköping, the king and the legates probably agreed to install a papal tax across Sweden, which was called Peter's Pence. However, Nicholas's plans to create a Swedish archbishopric hit a bit of a hurdle. This is because, according to Saxo Grammaticus, the Swedes and the Geats could not agree which town or person was worthy of the dignity. Nicholas Breakspear, according to the historian Anders Bergqvist, was taken aback by this unseemly conflict and declared that neither people deserved this highest ecclesiastical honour. So basically, different parts of Sweden wanted the archbishop to live in their home territory and have the cathedral there. So Nicholas, just like any parent, just went, well, neither of you can have the remote then. Neither of you can't play nice. Neither of you can have the archbishop. It stays in Denmark. That's pretty much it, really, yeah. And uh, Bergqvist also suggests that perhaps it was the Archbishop of Lund who was stirring up this trouble, hinting to both the Geats and the Sveyar that they deserved the Archbishop, knowing that they would argue with each other so much that Nicholas would get offended, and that would mean that he wouldn't lose more land to a new Archbishop. And uh, that seems to be a quite a tempting uh, reason for this bit of drama. And it seems to have worked, because not only that the, there wasn't a new Swedish Archbishopric, but on the way home via Denmark, Breakspear visits the Archbishop of Lund and promises him that he will have so-called primacy over any future Archbishop of Sweden, which means that it was the Archbishop of Lund who would have the right to select and ordain the Archbishop of Sweden, which ends up being in Uppsala in 1164. And this is actually all confirmed by Breakspear himself when he becomes Pope, only a few years later under the name Hadrianus IV, and who's the only English Pope ever. Wow. Well, only English Pope so far. Exactly. And uh, so basically, uh, a few years later, which we'll cover in the next few episodes, uh, there's an archbishopric created in Uppsala, but it's the Archbishop of Lund who gets to choose who this archbishop is and also is the person who takes charge of the ceremony of appointing them and giving this new Archbishop of Uppsala the pallium, which is a cloak or a bit like a fancy tie which an archbishop or other important people in the church get to wear. So, uh, yeah, that's all a bit of scheming by the Archbishop of Lund. Very scheming uh, and quite interesting and something we will see develop further as we go these church officials getting involved in politics 
On the topic of Nicholas Breakspeare or later Hadrianus IV, he will no doubt be covered, perhaps in a few years, by the excellent podcast Pontifacts, when they get to him in their ranking of all of the popes in history. They're a really excellent podcast that you should all listen to. Before we go for today, that's it on the papal legate, uh, but let's just skip ahead one more year to see the conclusion of the Danish Civil War. One year after Sverko died, a final compromise was seemingly agreed in 1157, as all three of these men came under pressure from Danish nobles and leaders to just end the war for good. So Sven, Knut and Valdemar were set up as co-rulers, with Knut ruling over Zealand, where Copenhagen is. However, fans of Game of Thrones might enjoy this next part, uh, because Sven had arranged a peace banquet to formalize this agreement in the town of Roskilde on the 9th of August 1157. During the banquet, Sven tried to kill both Knut and Valdemar. Uh, So, so much for a peace banquet. Knut was allegedly killed by one of Sven's warriors, but Valdemar managed to escape. According to one source, Valdemar managed to knock over some candlesticks and escape in the following fire and confusion. He fled out into the darkness and managed to return to Jutland. Saxo Grammaticus, however, says that after they were betrayed, Valdemar quickly jumped up from his seat, wrapped his cloak around his hand, and not only mitigated with it the blows aimed at his head, but also gave Ditlev, who violently attacked him, such a blow to the chest that he crashed to the ground. Valdemar also fell himself and was severely wounded in the thigh, but he immediately got to his feet again, and without caring for his wound, broke through the crowds that stood in his way and ran out the door. One, who in a dark place came against him and grabbed the tassels of his belt to hold him back, he slipped loose from. Ditlev then jumped up from the floor and cleaved off the head of Knut, who had nothing but his hand to defend himself with. And quite rightly, this is now known as the Blood Feast of Roskilde. (laughs) Yeah, Blood Feast indeed. That's very gruesome. Uh, Roskilde, we should say, is a lovely town. If you're in the area, you should visit. But don't accept any invitations from uh, medieval kings to go there. Any Danish people. They might still be angry about uh, Prince John's raping. No, I don't think so. Danish people are lovely, so say yes if they invite you to a party. Sure. Um, But however he did manage to escape, Valdemar does escape, and he manages to rally his forces. Just two months later, in October of 1157, Sven and Valdemar meet in a battle on the Jutland Peninsula. This was a short battle, and Sven lost. He tried to escape through a bog or a swamp of some kind, but he was caught by some peasants who killed him with an axe in the boggy ground. And this leaves Valdemar the only king of Denmark, and in future he'll become known as King Valdemar the Great. Uh, with his wife, Sophia, remember the daughter of Rikissa, he has nine children, two of whom will become kings of Denmark, and two daughters will marry 
other kings around Europe, and some of them marrying various princes and uh, other nobles. But we'll get to them when or if they come up in our story. Yeah, no spoilers this time, but a mild spoiler for next time. Next episode, we will see what happens in Sweden after Sverkel's death. And it isn't all that simple, because... Who will become king? That's the big question. Uh, I'll have to wait and see in two weeks' time. Because for now, that is all from us. Another dramatic, soap opera-esque episode of Swedish history. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter. And you can search for a Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. And those of you who like looking at the episode pictures will notice that this one is slightly different. It's not one of my paint drawings of what's happening in the episode, but it's actually a super cool picture of us two as a flat pack history of Sweden. It's so good. One of our listeners, Barbara, has made it and it, we we just love it so much. When we got it, I just like, I could not stop looking at it because uh Barbara you've really captured Chris and me in historical gear in a really amazing way very talented yeah normally we would just uh put this up on social media but by putting it as the episode picture this week everyone gets to see it so big clap for Barbara thank you so much but until next time, uh, it's goodbye from us. Bye-bye. Hey, Dor.